Well, hello, friends. Good Sunday morning to you. I miss you. It is not the same. I don't think any of us are pretending or thinking even for a moment that this is the same. But we trust the Lord's providence in things great and small, and we're going to open up our Bibles and marvel at Jesus nonetheless and all the more this morning. You'll notice behind me there are <clears throat> a number of empty pews. Empty pews are not a sight that any of us want to see. They're not a sight that I would want to have behind me as I preach, but there they are. Sermons aren't meant to be preached to empty pews. Empty pews aren't meant to be empty at all. They're meant to be full. But empty pews are an invitation to pray. And whether your church has pews or not, right, whether the building has uh, pews or not, every empty seat in a corporate gathering of a church is an invitation to pray. On the one hand, it's an invitation to pray who, for those who might fill the seat one day. On, on the other hand, it's an invitation to pray for those who normally fill the seat. You can imagine and picture in your mind the sanctuary even right now. And you can think, oh, he would normally be sitting right there and oh, that family would be sitting back there and in front of them, they'd be sitting here and oh, that young couple sits right there and the, the new family, they, man, they were sitting right. You can see where people sit because let's be honest, we all sit in our assigned seats when it comes to church. In fact, you've probably already claimed your assigned seat for this season of church at home, right? It's this seat on the couch and your church couch seat may be different than your movie couch seat. I don't know how it works where you're at, but you've probably claimed your seat already. But again, every empty seat when it comes to the corporate gathering of the church, every empty pew is an invitation to pray. In our text this morning, Philippians chapter one, verses nine through 11, the apostle Paul is distanced from his friends in Philippi. And Paul embraces this absence as an invitation to pray. He embraces the physical distance between him and the Philippian believers. He embraces this absence as an invitation to pray. What if you did the same? That's the question I wanna ask you this morning in our time together. What if you embraced this season of distance, this season of physical absence, what if you embraced the image of the empty pew or the passing pain that you feel when you think about that brother or sister that you normally see on a Sunday morning and you can't see in this season? What if you embraced this season of distance as an invitation to pray? In his little book on prayer, Praying the Bible, which is one of the best books on prayer, by the way. We're actually gonna put up a, a, a clip this afternoon on our Facebook page walking through this book, so I hope you go ahead and like the Facebook page if you haven't done that. But in his little book called Praying the Bible, Dr. Donald Whitney helps us understand why we don't pray and why we feel like our prayers are broken. And he says we often pray the same old things about the same old things. But he opens up the Bible and he helps us understand how praying through the Psalms particularly can help us pray differently and experience more disciplined and more powerful prayer. Think about it. What riches are on the other side of a disciplined prayer life? And what if you embrace this season to grow in the discipline of prayer? Think about it. What's on the other side of a disciplined prayer life? On the other side of a more disciplined prayer life is more joy. On the other side of a more disciplined prayer prayer life is more spiritual power, more spiritual vitality. 
on the other side of a more disciplined prayer life could actually be deeper friendships. Paul opens up his letter to the Philippians with some of the most relational language in the Bible. He holds nothing back as he describes his love and affection and the compassion with which he held the Philippian believers. And Paul, in the first few verses of his letter to the Philippians, talks about how much he loved them. And having explained how even over a distance he was drawing them near in his heart, now he explains how he draws them near in his prayers. Paul begins in verse 9 with these words, and it is my prayer. He talked about how he yearned for them with the affection and the compassion of Christ and how that necessarily led him to pray for the believers in Philippi. And now Paul's gonna talk about how he prays for them. Paul knew that in many ways, prayer was a better means of spiritual fellowship than proximity. Think about it. When it comes to God's work in the lives of people you love, your prayers are more powerful than even your presence. When it comes to God doing his work in the lives of people you love, your prayers may be more important than your proximity. Paul seemed to say, when it came to the believers in Philippi, he seemed to say, man, the more I care about these people, the more I pray for them. And the more I pray for them, the more I care about them. I love them, and so I pray, and I pray for them, and so I love them. And these two things grow together. That's the way it was for the Apostle Paul when it came to his relationship with the believers in Philippi, and that's how it could be with us. What if you embraced this season of social distance as an invitation to pray? Well, how do we pray in these seasons? I wanna turn to our text this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and see three ways that we can pray for other believers in times of social distance. Three ways we can pray for each other in times of social distance. First, we pray that love would abound, that love would abound. Paul explains, it is my prayer that your love would abound more and more. Now, anytime we talk about love, we need to define the word. It's one of those words that gets lost in translation all too easily. In youth ministry, I would often say, and I still find myself saying it rather often, to a young lady when she's dating that young boy and he bats his baby blue eyes and he smiles at her and says, oh baby, I love you. And then he puckers up those lips and leans in for the kiss, right? I'll tell young ladies at that point, stop him right there and ask him, what is your definition of love? And if he stumbles or stutters over his definition of love, you drop that boy like a bad habit, right? Because he hasn't thought it through. What is love? What is love? The best definition that I've heard so far is by Vodi Bauckham, who describes and defines love this way. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. I'm gonna say it again, so go ahead and get your pen, pencil, lipstick, mascara, whatever you can find to write it down, open up that note app uh, and, 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 and write this down. Here it goes. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So Paul prays that their love would abound more and more. Now, Paul gives no object to this love. He doesn't pray specifically that their love for God would grow or abound more and more. He doesn't pray specifically that their love for one another would abound more and more. He he leaves the object of their love open. Why? 
Well, because he intends for all of those loves to abound. In every arena of the Christian's life, love ought to be the distinguishing mark. And in every season of the Christian's life, love ought to be the distinguishing mark. Love for God? Yes, absolutely. Love for one another? Yes, absolutely. Love for our neighbors? Yes, especially in this season. Love even for our enemies? Yep. Paul prays that all of those and more loves would abound. We can hear the Apostle Paul saying what he said in 1 Corinthians 13 as he talked about love and he he said, these three remain faith, hope, and love and the greatest of these, what is love, right? There is no, uh, no moment in the Christian life, no area in the Christian life in which the Christian can say, I don't think I'll be loving here. It's contrary to our new nature. It's contrary to us as a people who have been raised to walk in the newness of life, as we say, when somebody gets baptized. We heard last week in uh, uh, verse 8 of Philippians 1 how Paul yearned for them with the affection of Jesus Christ, the uh, compassion of Jesus Christ, the love of Christ. And now Paul's praying that that same love would abound in us. So Paul is not merely praying that we would love this group or that group more and more when he prays that love would abound. He's praying that we would be more loving. Christians of all people ought to be the greatest displayers of love. Why? Because we've been the greatest recipients of love. The apostle John explains we love because he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4. Well, how did he love us? It's a great question. I'm really glad you asked. By this, John writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We can think of those um, nurses and doctors and the medical personnel. We can think of first responders who run into the fire when everybody else is running away, especially in this season. What a display of love. No one can better display love than those of us who have seen it and been embraced by love in Christ. So Paul wants his friends in Philippi to abound in love, and we ought to want the same for our friends. And so we ought to be praying that our love would abound more and more. Well, what does this mean? Well, one of the things it means is that we pray in a way that drives those for whom we're praying to the cross. We pray that they would get closer to the cross of Christ and experience love. It's not just that Paul wanted them to love more. He wanted them to be more aware that they were loved. A gospel-centered prayer prays for abounding love because it takes the one you're praying for and it drives them to the cross and looks at Christ crucified for them and says, there is love here, right here, in this man crucified for you, Jesus Christ, love personified, giving the ultimate display of love, which is on the cross. We can think of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, you matter to God. In the seasons in which you're looking around and saying, does God even notice me? Does God even know I'm here? You matter to God. He loves you. He's proven it to you on the cross. When you come to terms with this, that this, Christ, was love for you, your love will abound more and more. It's been said that love is the greatest apologetic. It's the greatest proof of our claims to faith. Well, friends, how much more so in this season? In a season of social distancing, 
It is abounding love, even through a distance, that will prove whether or not we believe what we claim to believe. So Paul prays that their love would abound more and more, but he doesn't just leave this definition of love or this description of love without some guidance. He gives two guiding factors. Love is to abound with knowledge and all discernment. With knowledge and all discernment. It's helpful to think of those two words in this way. Knowledge is remembering that God is at the center of a situation. Knowledge is remembering that God is at the center of a situation. Discernment is living in light of the fact that God is at the center of a situation. Knowledge is remembering that God is at the center of a situation. Uh, discernment is living in light of that knowledge, living in light of the fact that uh, God is at the center of the situation. This is the only place in the New Testament where uh, that word uh, discernment is used. But scholars tell us that the same word is used throughout the book of Proverbs, which is one of the best books in the Bible, in my humble but accurate opinion. I think in a season like this, we need to be digging into the book of Proverbs, right? Wisdom applied. What's he doing? He's helping us live in light. In Proverbs, Solomon's helping us live in light of what we claim to believe, weighing all of the options and seeing God at the center and then saying, okay, what does that mean for my life? So Paul is praying that their love would abound more and more, not in some sort of merely emotional experience, but in a God-centered and God-exalting way. And let's not miss the point that Paul makes. He doesn't just pray, I want you to love more, but I want your love to abound. And he doesn't even just say, I want your love to abound. He says, I want your love to abound more and more. There's an exponential growth here. One scholar explains it this way. Thus, Paul prayed that the Philippians' love would overflow all dimensions in a lavish, ongoing, limitless love, an unremitting geyser of love up to God and a flood of love out to others. One other commentator puts it this way. The fire in the apostle Paul never says, okay, that's enough love. Paul is passionate here. He's saying more love, more love, more love. I want your love to abound more and more. And then when you don't think it can abound anymore, I want it to keep abounding. I don't know if this is a helpful illustration or not, but let's just try it. Paul wants love like many of us want queso. Or maybe it's tacos for you. Or maybe it's something else. I don't know. But you can imagine. He wants their love to abound more and more and more and more. In this season of social distancing, friends, let's draw each other near in prayer. Let's pray that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So the first thing that Paul prays for, and the first thing we can pray for, is that love would abound. Secondly, we can pray that love would be displayed. Paul goes on, he explains his prayer for increased love so that you may approve what is excellent. The idea here is that their love, as it is abounding, and as it's a result of its abounding, they're approving or affirming excellence or what is best as opposed to mediocrity or what will simply get a passing grade. I was listening to a podcast the other day in which a guy was talking about himself going through high school and he said, in high school, I lettered in mediocrity. And he was saying it with a bit of shame, right? How much joy did he miss? How many experiences did he miss? So Paul is praying that we wouldn't get caught up in mediocrity, but we would approve what is excellent. The image here is of people testing various objects and proving the best among them. 
And the impression Paul is making seems to be that making the best selection out of many good choices. So this isn't discerning good from bad, although that's important. By all means, let's discern good from bad. This is discerning best from good. Okay, so let's remember, Paul is praying for believers whom he can't see, he can't look them in the eye, he can't put his hand on their shoulder in the hallway and pray for them, he can't give them a hug or a high five, but he can pray. And he prays that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent. One commentator describes this as the spirit-given ability to discern that which God has already marked off as essential or superlative in life in Christ. The ability not only includes distinguishing right from wrong, but best from second best. So let me ask you a question. Do you have the ability to discern what God has marked off as superlative in the Christian life? Do you have the ability to discern, to know, to acknowledge, to approve what God has marked off as superlative in the Christian life, as most important in the Christian life. Just a little hint, it ain't your political preferences. In this season of social distancing, we are reminded of what matters most. We are reminded of what is most important, what is superlative in the Christian life. So friends, one of my prayers for you in this season of social distancing and one of my prayers that that I'm hoping you'll pray for each other is that in this season, we would be reminded of what is superlative, what is most precious, what is most beautiful, what is most important in the Christian life. Approving what is excellent means to order our lives in accordance with what is truly beautiful and truly good and truly superlative. Do you see the intentionality that Paul is, is pleading for here? He's praying that they would purposefully consider the gospel and the implications of the gospel for their decisions. When you don't purposefully consider the beauty of the gospel, when you don't purposefully consider that Christ died for you, when you don't purposefully consider that and then apply it and discern what is best and excellent and order your lives accordingly, when we don't approve what is excellent, we drift and nobody drifts in the right direction. William Wilberforce put it this way, yet thus life rolls away with too many of us in a course of shapeless idleness. So is that the course you're on? Or are you carefully considering Christ? Are you approving what is excellent? Let me ask the same question a different way. How many harmful decisions do you think people are making during this time of social distancing and and fear? How many bad habits do you think people are falling into? How many Christians are making decisions that are contrary to their confession of faith? How much damage is being done in this season that will take years to undo? Friends, when we think about the damage that's being done in this season and we feel that burden, then we begin to feel the weight of Paul's prayer that they would approve what is excellent. Paul did not want them chasing things that were less than superlative. Approving what is excellent is a display of love. It's living in light of the knowledge of God with an awareness of your neighbor. Love seeks what is best for others, not merely for itself. 
One theologian again puts it this way. Paul's prayer for all his friends in Philippi is that their love would grow as it's informed by knowledge and insight so that they will be able to choose the best way to express love to one another. Paul, in one sense, is saying, okay, guys, you realize the lavishness of the gospel, right? That God sent down his own son who knew no sin to become sin for you, that you might become right with God. Remember that when you're making decisions. Let that love that you've received influence how you love one another. Let that love influence how you approve what to do or what not to do, what to talk about, what not to talk about. Let that love drive your decisions. We see this same kind of attitude in Paul in Philippians chapter three, when he says, you know what? I'm gonna forget everything that's behind me and I'm gonna press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Jesus. Paul says, none of that is superlative. Only this is superlative. And so I'm going to approve what is excellent. One of the greatest prayers that you can pray for your Christian brothers and sisters, your Christian friends in this season is that they would love Jesus above all above sin, above self, above riches, above comfort, above ease. And then one of the greatest things you can do after you pray is text them or call them and say, hey, I prayed for you this way. How can I help? Friends, let's pray that our love would abound more and more. And let's pray that that love would be displayed. Finally, we ought to pray that love would be deepened. Paul's prayed for their abounding love. He's prayed for their uh, love to be displayed. And now he prays for their love to be deepened. Paul prays that the Philippian believers would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now let's understand what Paul means when he says the day of Christ. It's, it's what Paul refers to in his letter to the Corinthians when he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says later in his letter to the Philippians to live in such a way that in the day of Christ, Paul would be proud that he didn't run or labor in vain, that his investment in them had paid off. That would be proven on the day of Christ. And let us all live in such a way that we'll not be ashamed in the last day of how we spent this day. Imagine the impact those words would have had on the Philippian believers as they heard Paul's letter read among their gathered congregation. They would have heard Paul saying, I'm praying that you would be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. And I wonder how many of them would have said, oh, man, that, I hadn't thought about that in a while. I mean, I had thought about, you know, how we were gonna order our day and our new schedule and our new calendar and all of these things that are really important, but I had stopped thinking about how, whether or not I'm gonna be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Imagine that would have shaken them up. Martin Luther said aptly, only two days matter on the Christian's calendar, this day and that day. This day in which we find ourselves right now and that day on which we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said, the devil loves to give us ideas of great spirituality as long as those ideas and plans are marked one day. I'll begin to pray more one day. I'll begin to read my Bible more one day. I'll begin to uh, reach out to my neighbor one day. But friends, don't let this season be in vain in regard to your spiritual growth. This season of social distance must be lived in light of the day of Christ. Every day on the Christian calendar ought to be lived in light of that day. That's Paul's prayer. My friend and 
fellow pastor Rob Shepard uh, often says it this way. He says, live in such a way so that the pastor won't have to lie at your funeral. I love that. Live in such a way so that the pastor doesn't have to lie. He won't have to lie at your funeral. So Paul prays that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He uses the word pure or it's sincere in some translations. The word here literally means exposed by sunlight. One scholar explains that um, what would happen in ancient Rome is that fine pottery would be relatively thin and it would be fragile and it would often develop cracks as it it hardened as it was put in the fire. Now, shady shops would take wax and they would melt that wax down. They would fill in the cracks with wax and then they would paint or uh, uh, put some sort of finish on it that covered up the wax. So when you looked at it, nobody would know that there was anything wrong. Nobody would know that there was any crack. But when you poured something hot into the container, it would melt that wax. So just as such, um, what the, what the scholar explains is that in ordinary light, the deception was usually undetectable, but when held up to the sunlight, it was clearly exposed because the wax appeared darker. So reputable dealers would stamp their products with a stamp that said, uh, sin Sarah, which meant without wax. It was a guarantee of high quality. Just as pottery was held up to the sunlight to reveal cracks or other defects, the obedient, faithful believer makes sure to expose his life to the sunlight of Scripture. That's what Paul's praying here. He's praying that we would expose our lives to the sunlight of Scripture, that we would show where the cracks are. David prayed in Psalm 139, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The idea here is a day of reckoning or divine judgment. It's a courtroom in which all of our sins are laid on the table for all to see. But the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that Jesus walks into that courtroom and he takes each and every one of our sins and says, that belongs to me. He takes each and every one of our sins and says, I will bear the guilty verdict for each and every one of them. And that's what he did on the cross. He took on your sin. He bore the full guilty verdict that you deserved. And he gave you his righteousness. The beauty of the gospel is not only that you are forgiven Right? The beauty of the gospel is that as good as it is that we're declared innocent in the courtroom, it doesn't stop there. We're not meant to stay in the courtroom. We're adopted and carried into the family room. We're not just forgiven in the courtroom. We're adopted and carried into the family room. And we find that we've got a place in the family photo right next to God, our father, and Christ, our older brother, fully forgiven, fully adopted. And so Paul prays that the Philippian believers would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He's praying that they would look more and more like Jesus who saved them, that they would grow more and more into the family image. Jesus explains this in John chapter 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. 
in this season of social distancing where, where you have to kind of keep a distance from other people, you can draw intimately near to Jesus. You can abide in Christ. This is beautifully freeing. My job as a Christian is to cling to Jesus. Your job as a Christian is to cling to Jesus. And as we do that, we'll bear fruit. The gospel is not that we, when we do good, God loves us, and that when we do bad, God hates us. The gospel is that in Christ, God loves us. And so let us come to Jesus and let us cling to Jesus. This is beautifully freeing, and yet it's something we've got to fight for. We've got to fight to abide in Jesus. And as we abide in Jesus, we're growing. Even in the midst of a crisis, you can grow more like Jesus. So I'd like to close our time together by considering with you the last phrase that Paul uses there in our text, to the glory and praise of God. I mean, if ever there was a church phrase or Christianese language, that would be it, right? But, but let's be crystal clear about what Paul means here when he says to the glory and the praise of God. This is often referred to as a doxological statement, which is just a fancy word for meaning it's a statement of worship. It's a statement recognizing the beauty and the majesty and the goodness and the worth of God. It's a statement of praise. And doxologies aren't meant to be merely studied. They're meant to be enjoyed. And so it is with God. Friends, God is not meant merely to be studied. He's meant to be known and enjoyed. He's meant to be trusted, even in seasons of great uncertainty, even in seasons when we're not sure how things are gonna work out. God is meant to be trusted, known, and enjoyed. So one of my prayers for you is that in this season that you would grow closer to God that you would grow in your knowledge of God, that you would grow in your trust of God, that you would grow in your enjoyment of God. So friends, let me just ask, do you know God? Do you know him? You can. Open up your Bibles and get to know him. Begin reading uh, one of the gospels. Begin reading Philippians, the great season for that. Open up your Bibles and get to know God and you will find that he is far more holy than you ever imagined and he is far more beautiful than you ever imagined, and that he is far better than anything you could ever imagine. Friends, this morning, God says to you through his son, Jesus Christ, I love you. God so loved you that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And my prayer is that that might be you. Let me pray for us. So Father, I thank you for the good news of the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scripture. We believe this to be true and we believe it to be unshakably good news and we believe you to be unwaveringly good to us. And so I pray that even in this season of distance, we might grow in our love for you, that our love might abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. God, I pray that we might love our neighbor well and love our brother and sister well. I pray, God, that, that not only that our love would abound, but that our love would be uh, displayed and that it would be deepened. And maybe even this morning through this digital time together, you might open up some eyes that they might see that Christ is a bigger savior than they are a sinner. And they might place their faith in Christ maybe for the first time. So God, we trust you. We trust your providence in things great and small. 
And we ask you for your help, especially in this season, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, before you sign off, over the past couple of weeks, we've been exploring this digital world that we're in and digital sermons. And at the end of the sermon, I've forgotten to do something that we've closed almost every other um, congregational gathering out with. And so I wanna close the way we normally close this morning. Before I do that, though, I wanna remind you, check out the Facebook page, make sure you like that. Uh, If you're on YouTube, look for some other videos. We hope to be uh, posting some encouraging things. But, But let's close this way. Catalyst Church, having opened up our Bibles and having marveled at Jesus, even in the midst of an unknown season, Catalyst Church, you are not dismissed, you are sent. God bless you.